School of Ministry, this is Nathan Roberts, and unfortunately I cannot be with you guys tonight, but I will be back with you next week. Still, I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to talk to you about community tonight, especially since we're starting up small groups here at Influence. And what I want us to do for just a few minutes is to consider the ant. Proverbs 6.6 6 tells us to do that. It says, consider the ant, learn from it, become wise. And ants to us are these annoying little creatures that get into our sugar, they eat our food, they make a mess, they're gross, and we do everything that we can to eliminate them. But I do want us to slow down for a second and to do what Proverbs says, and to consider the ant. Because ants are actually really fascinating little insects. The ant colonies are broken down really into three main jobs. You might already know this, so bear with me if you do. We've got our queen ant. Now the queen ant is responsible for, for laying the eggs that the male ants are then supposed to fertilize. The male ant only has that as its responsibility, is to fertilize the eggs for the sake of reproduction. Now the worker ants, or the soldier ants, um, are, are actually female ants, and they will not probably at any point become queen ants. They'll just live their life as worker ants. They have a short lifespan as opposed to the queen ant, and the queen ant will live anywhere from 10 to 20 years. Crazy. Um, but th this is kind of the way that ants are broken down. Now, there can be multiple queen ants. Sometimes there's only one in a colony. Sometimes there can be multiple, though. It depends upon geographical location and the needs of that specific colony. The worker ants, they're, they're the ones that are responsible for all the tunneling. And so if you've ever seen one of those ant farms, you'll see all the little spider web type things that they got going on underground. And that's what the worker ant is doing. They use their saliva to actually build up the tunnel system around them so that that stays strong and hard and, and they don't have to worry about cave-ins. And so they're responsible for the tunneling. They're the ones who are gathering up the food, taking it back to the queen, making sure that she and the, then the larvae um, are able to survive. They're the, also the ones that are fighting off the enemy ants or other insects that are trying to get to the nest. And so they each have these, these, these different responsibilities the queen, the male, and the female worker ants. And it's all for the sake, really, of one thing, which is the preservation of life within that colony, the reproduction of life for the entire colony. It's all about raising up the next generation. And so these ant colonies, were actually, they're, they're referred to as communities. And these ants come together, each with their own specific job, and they work together for the sake of community. And so tonight, as we consider what community looks like, we're, we're thinking then about what community looks like in the, from, the, from the perspective of being co-laborers or co-workers. 1 Corinthians is one of my favorite books in the New Testament, and I want us to look really quickly at 1 Corinthians 3. And I'm going to start in verse 6 here. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, and he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Now this is really cool to me, because what verse 9 actually tells us is that we are co-laborers with God. That we, we, we come together in the context of community with this already communal God, this triune God. We talked about that on week one of School of Ministry. We have this God who is communal in his essence, and he invites us then into his labor. And that's what we get to do. If you were part of our evangelism class last quarter, then, then you know what that looks like. You've tasted it, you've experienced it probably to some degree, that when we actually speak out about our faith, 
that we are partnering with the Holy Spirit, with the ministry that he's already doing in the life of people who don't yet know or believe in Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is the one who's at work. Now, what Paul highlights here to the church in Corinth is, look, Apollos may have planted, or I may have planted the seed, Apollos may have watered it, but God is the one who makes it grow. When we come together in the context of community, we serve one another, we love one another, or maybe we serve our outside community, our external community. What's going on there is that we're doing these little tasks, and we get to partner with what God is doing. The word is very clear on the fact that it's the Holy Spirit who makes the seed actually grow. And that's an amazing concept for us. We get to partner with God in that process. We are his field. We are his building, his temple. Now, 1 Corinthians is a really interesting book to me. The first three chapters uh, of the book, really, Paul is addressing this idea of of uh, division within the church. He's trying to reintroduce it, um, reintroduce the concept of unity back into the church. Because what people are doing is they're starting to associate and identify with certain leaders in the church. So Apollos, for example, or for, for Peter, or Paul. And what Paul is saying in his letter to the church in Corinth is, hold on a second, you don't follow Apollos, you don't follow Peter, you don't follow me, we all follow Jesus and we follow him together. So when he gets to this point in verse three, or in chapter three, and he talks about this idea of being co-workers with God, he's really emphasizing the point that, look, if you believed in Jesus, it wasn't because I came to you, what he says in chapter two is with eloquent speech um, or persuasive language. And so that's what Paul is saying here is, look, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's a God who made the, this seed of faith grow within you. Sure, I may have planted it. Sure, Apollos may have watered it. But really, God is the one who's at work. And so there's something really, really fascinating to me about the idea of community. Because when we come together in community, we become co-laborers with Christ. And we also become co-laborers with each other with Christ. So do you see how that works? We for, for In part, when we do ministry, what we're doing is we're partnering with God. But consequently, because you know God and I know God and, and people throughout this room know God, really what's happening here is we're coming together in the context of community and now we are bonded through serving God together. We're bonded through this idea of reaching the lost or maybe just of serving the church. We're, we're bonded in community And when we consider the ant, and we consider the fact that they have these different jobs, we see that the worker ant's responsible for one thing, we see that the male ant's responsible for another thing, we see that the queen ant's responsible for another thing, but they all have to work in conjunction with one another in order for their colony to even survive. And if you think about Influence Church, when you think about this place that you're sitting in, I cannot do what Milt does. This room right here where you're at, This is an amazing room. I could never build this. I could never construct this. I don't have the mind or the skill to do it. And I'm so grateful that God has brought Milt to our team to be somebody who can lead these types of building projects because I can't do that. There's so many other things that I cannot do within the church. And that's why I need you guys to come around alongside me. That's why even Pastor Phil needs you guys to come alongside him because there are things that he simply cannot do. It's not a one-man show here. We all get to work together for the sake of the church and for the sake of Christ. And we, in doing so, we're co-laborers with one another and we're co-workers with Christ. Later on in 1 Corinthians, when we get into the, the talk, the discussion on the gifts of the Spirit, really in chapters 12 through 14, what we see Paul discussing then with the church 
is that we are one body, but we're made up of many different parts. This is going to sound pretty familiar, I'm sure, to most of you. But the idea here being that if we took a human body, the hand, for example, is not the eye. And the nose is not the ear. And all of these parts have to work together, and they do work together in conjunction to create the full body, the full person, in order to work to its greatest capacity. And so we have multiple people throughout this room, even right now, where you're sitting. We've got hands, we've got feet, we've got legs, we've got ears, we've got mouths, and we've got eyes. But we've all got to work together for the sake of Christ. And so we get to do that. We get to do that. We're invited into this communal relationship with one another and with God through being co-laborers and co-workers. I'm super excited about what's going on with small groups. The curriculum is incredible. We've got a great team that's building that for you guys. And it's going to be amazing to see what happens when our church comes together and we're all studying in depth the exact same material. We value that as a church. We value growing together and becoming uh, really unified in what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. I'm really excited, though, to see what comes out of these small groups as well. I'm excited to hear the stories from you guys about, hey, we, we decided that for maybe our, our fellowship night that we were going to actually go out and evangelize to people at the movies or at downtown Disney. That's going to be incredible to hear your guys' testimonies as you share that. Because what's happening in that church is that you guys are coming together and you're saying, we're choosing to sacrifice our time and we're choosing to co-labor together. And as a group, we're deciding to co-labor with Christ and bringing people into the kingdom. And so we are so excited about that um, and about what God is going to do in and through you guys. Marion is here again tonight, and she's going to be at the table over to my left, technically, but your guys' right-hand side. She's going to be over there, and she's going to be taking names for people who want to sign up for small groups. And so this is different. Last week we asked for hosts, and we asked for uh, leaders on Sunday. Tonight what we're asking is if you are not yet a part of a small group, and, and I just want to point one thing out really fast. You've probably noticed that you've created these small group communities already in school of ministry, just in this discipleship class alone. And perhaps those relationships are just pour overs from, from past school of ministry classes that you've been a part of. But there's pockets, there's these communities that are forming here in, in our school of ministry. And so we want to encourage you guys, there's natural affinities here in this place. You're naturally bonding with people, and that's really good. And so if you're not already in a small group, then we want to encourage you to find those people that you're already starting to congregate with to get into a small group with them and to start jumping into the studies that we're creating for you. You can do that tonight. You can get signed up. I want to encourage you guys to do that. And so let's together learn more about what it means to be a community of co-laborers with one another and with Christ because it's an incredible opportunity and it's an incredible experience. And church is doing amazing things. And so let's see what God can do through us as we co-labor with him. God bless you tonight. Have a great time. And uh, here's Pastor Phil. Love you guys. See you next week. Bye. Hey, how's everybody? You don't have to be obnoxious to be excited. All right? You just have to be excited, right? And get a little, uh, little encourager. Hey, I want to just say a couple of things so I don't forget. We'll reinforce it again at the end. But next Tuesday, really work hard to get here on time if you can. I know some of you are coming from work and it's hard. But uh, Corey Stark's going to be here, and he's going to speak that first hour from IHOP. And he is um, the guy that goes around the um, United States and around the world and sets up these international house of prayer in different places. So 
Uh, if you remember the story about the converted Jew and saw the vision of Jesus, and did I tell that story here? I think so, didn't I? Yeah? Some of you shake your heads and some of you shake, say no. Um, anyway, uh, maybe he'll tell that story. But um, he's going to be here, and we're, gonna, we're starting that process of thinking, how do we take prayer ministry to the next level? They've taken it to the next level for about 20 years in that they have a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour prayer ministry, and they have it in English, and they have it in five other languages. And they base it around, build it around Revelation 5 on worship and the Word, you know, where there's this worship and the Word going on all the time continually in heaven. Now, we're not ready for 724. So we're going to find a starting place. He's going to be with us for a couple of days, and but I asked him if he would come and speak uh, next Tuesday night. So I want to encourage you to be here. Um, I would say that, you know, invite someone. I just don't want you to invite too many people because there's not room here. But if we, I guess we can always go in there. Um, so anyway, that's something I don't want you to forget about. Really, really important. And then tomorrow night, is it 7 to 8.30? 7 to 8.30, uh, We'd love to have all of you come and join us for a night of prayer and healing. We're going to be here. We're going to start doing this once a month um, at church. If you've got someone that wants uh, some some prayer, um, please bring them. Come at 730. You don't have to stay for the whole time, but at least come in that time slot and be members of uh, prayer team here during that. And just also encourage you, if you would like to get in prayer ministry, you need to have an expression of things that you do and learn from here. And so we just want to encourage you to consider that, uh, whether you can be there every week or not, it would be great for you to start plugging in, being part of what we do in prayer ministry. Okay, uh, one other uh, announcement. Uh, one of the great things that you can do in addition to reading your Bible and praying is you can read great works from the past. And, you know, a lot of you have books that you're using. Some of you use devotions and so forth. Uh, kind of my all-time favorite is Thomas Akempis, uh, The Imitation of Christ. And it's an interesting, I brought a copy here with me tonight. Um, I'm not going to pass it around, I'm just going to show it to you because it's about 140 years old, this one I have. But it's, um, but Kempis, uh, Thomas Akempis wrote this um, during his life and never published, never with the intent to publish. And it was discovered in, I think, 1471 after he died and became a highly published book, and I have read it not every day, but probably most days uh, for probably the last 15 years, maybe longer, um, because it's broken into little chapters. This one I particularly like. Um, I'm just going to show you a couple of plates on it because it's really pretty. And those are, uh, those, this is the old school way of doing it. Those are actually engraved plates and then that, the pressure, the weight on those pressed it into that, and that's actually gold leaf, not enough to sell, so don't steal my book, okay? But everybody says, pass it around. No, it, because it's fragile. It's, held, it's actually not glued binding. It's string. So um, it's just kind of one of the things I do. I love reading a campus, and so I have, you know, maybe a half a dozen, maybe a dozen. I'm not sure how, copies, different versions of, of a campus. And so I just encourage you to find something like that, uh, I think you would not be disappointed with Thomas Akempis if you if you had a copy of it and read it periodically. In fact, sometimes you find it difficult to know when he has uh, quoting scripture and when he's actually giving you just great spiritual advice because he weaves them together so well 
and it's something you can literally read your whole life and never become bored or never master, okay? So good to see you. Let's pray one more time. Spirit of God, we pray that you will speak to us tonight. We pray, Holy Spirit, that as we study, in fact, the Holy Spirit tonight, that, that you would make yourself known to us in a fresh way. We just invite your presence here, uh, not that you're not already here, God, but that, that we might be more aware, and God, that you might just overwhelm us with a sense of who you are. And as we study uh, really just the basics of the Holy Spirit tonight, we know, God, that you are basic and intermediate and advanced and beyond that. So we just want to know you better. So we invite you to speak powerfully and to minister to us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, let's just start with an idea. God's supreme goal for the universe is what? Let's try it one more time. God's supreme goal is what? You know, uh, one of the goals we have is for you to learn this. <laughs> All right? And it's not hard to do, but you have to kind of play the game. All right? And that means you've got to look at it once in a while, do something with it. So God delivered that supreme goal in three different ways. Remember, three phases. First phase is what? If you're looking in your book for this, it's not there. Did anyone not receive this diagram? You did receive it and you lost it? Okay, we're going to get you some more copies of it. Okay, so we want you to learn this by the time it's over. So there's three phases. First phase is Old Testament phase. And God spoke to us through Old Testament types and models like the Lamb of the Old Testament became in the New Testament the Lamb of God. Second phase is Christ and the Apostles. Third phase is what? The future kingdom, the future kingdom, not second coming, but future kingdom. So the second coming inaugurates that, so I'll give you that one. But it's the idea that God has a future kingdom in mind. Now, what God did was he said he gave Adam and Eve a great commission. Remember what it was? He Three things. What was it? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Being fruitful is the equivalent of what? Evangelism. Multiply is what? Discipleship. And fill the earth? Okay, now there's five phases that he wants us to carry this out in. First phase is what? Evangelism, then church planting, discipleship, then what? And then what? And the bridge into Christ's likeness and glorifying God is what? Discipleship. And discipleship is simply taking the truths that Christ taught, learning them, and then reproducing that in a life of another. Let me, give you, let me ask you this question. If I sit down with someone, like I've got two or three guys I'm discipling right now, one-on-one, if I sit down with a guy and I, and I take him through this discipleship book and I spend, let's say, six months with them, each one of them, have I discipled them? Some of you don't want to answer, do you? How many of you think no? Okay, why not? Exactly. You have not discipled. Someone has not been discipled unless they're reproducing their life in the life of another. So one of the principles we find in the book of Genesis, what works out really well for us in this study, is everything reproduces after its own kind. So seed, you know, corn reproduces wheat, right? No, it reproduces corn, right? Wheat, wheat, corn, corn. Dogs, dogs, cats, cats. Got it? Bad disciple reproduces a what? 
A bad disciple. A good disciple reproduces what? Good disciple. So everything is built on this idea of keeping the quality of what we pour into your life strong, that you're attentive to it, you take it serious, because you're going to teach somebody else, and if you don't, if you compromise and just kind of let your guard down and say, you know, I didn't really do that either, then what you're doing is you're reproducing someone who if they go out and do it, they're going to even water it down more, and by the time you get third and fourth generation, they don't really care. So we want to keep the standard high in discipleship in this learning process, and I promise you it's not that much work. You know, you say, well, I didn't do it this week. Well, then do it when you get home. I mean, don't neglect something that is really, really powerful in in the ministry of what we do here. Okay, four goals of biblical discipleship. Uh, Everybody close your book so you don't look at the diagram. However you got your diagram out, just close it up because I'm glad you can read. It's encouraging. It's the first step of good discipleship, being able to read. All right. Everybody got it hidden? Nobody's cheating? Cheaters go to hell. All right. Are you ready? Okay. Now, okay, goal number one, who thinks they know it? All right, Mike, give it to us. Establish the believer in the Word of God. So we're going to reproduce it exactly how it's written. So you want to try it one more time? Establish the believer in the Word of God. All of them start the same way. It's kind of a hint, right? Establish the believer. That's the first part. And the second one is what? Who, who, who knows that one? In fellowship with other believers. Third one, what? Establish the believer in the structure of the local church. Do we need a little work on this? I mean, you all doing good here? Okay, number four, to establish the believer in the ministry of the Word of God. So one and four sound similar, but they're different. One is establish a believer in the Word of God, and then the fourth one is establish a believer in a ministry of the Word. So what we want you to do when you get done with this, we want you to have a ministry with and of the Word of God so that you can take the Word of God, pour it into somebody else. Okay, so now just turn to your neighbor, whoever they may be right now, and go ahead and give them uh, the first goal of biblical discipleship. Without looking. Okay, once you do the first one, go to the second one. And when you finish the second one, go to the third one. All right, got it? Okay. Now, if you will just, here's a great way to learn. If The best way to learn is to create a story and talk out loud to yourself. So you're driving down the road. You've kind of got the ideas. And, hey, I just want to tell you, I just want to tell you, Phil, that you need to, to establish a believer in the Word of God because if you don't do that, then you can't really establish them in fellowship with other believers, and you need to establish them in the structure of the local church so that you can give them a ministry of the Word of God. And if you just kind of make a little game out of it, make a story, kind of recite it to yourself, if you say it out loud, 
It'll stick more. If you all you try to do is read it and memorize it, it will take you twice as long. You have to utilize your ear to maximize that. And remember we talked about how do the Jews, you know, the, the Jewish boy in the Jesus in the day of Jesus, he would memorize the entire five books of, of the Bible by the time he was twelve years old. You know? Now do you feel pretty pitiful trying to get four goals? I mean, seriously, right? Okay, and one of the things they do is they, they learn memory aids, so they would rock. You even see Jews today, they're rocking. What they've done is they've memorized the Torah with this rhythm because rhythm brings back memory. That's why you can remember the words to songs because there's a rhythm there, and you kind of, that's why the easiest Bible to memorize, believe it or not, is the King James Bible because it's poetic. It's got a rhythm to it that new translations don't have because they weren't concerned about it. And they didn't have Shakespeare weighing in on the translation, which always helps, right? Okay, so we want you to get these goals down. Then um, I, I really forget what if I gave you all of this, so, so help me out a little bit. Over on the seven stages, I gave you the scriptures that went next to each one of those. Is that correct? Did I give you the key word that goes down, that you write down the center column? You got that, okay? Change, learning, that one? Okay, good. All right. Um, now let me just talk to you a little bit about Jesus, Okay. Uh, Jesus comes and he gets how many guys and starts to pour into them and disciple them? How many guys? Twelve guys. And those twelve turn into another. They do something and they they reproduce themselves. Jesus begins to enlarge the crowd and it goes to 70. So I want you to write this down. You got Jesus, you got 12, you got 70. In my diagram, I just put a little arrow. Here's Jesus. Okay, now he's got 12. Now he's got 70. You get to the day of Pentecost, and how many are gathered in that upper room? Anybody remember? 120. Okay, the crowd's getting bigger, right? Peter gets up, Acts chapter 2, he preaches, and uh, how many get saved that day and are baptized? 3,000. So I'm just going to mark this down, 3,000. The the group is getting bigger, and we don't know if they were good at counting. There might have been 3,008, but they said 3,000, okay? Might have been a preacher, might have only been 2,000. Who knows? All right. Then, we, so that's Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Now we go to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, it says 5,000 men. That means there had to be at least 10,000 there, right? Probably 10,000 women. 5,000 men, there's going to be 10,000 women, right? All they said, let's just count the guys today, all right? We're going to do guy count. So there's, there's 10,000 guys, okay, or 5,000 guys. All right. Now, write this down, Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. Acts chapter 17 and verse 6, it says they turned the world upside down. In the space of just a few years, they were accused by those who heard the preaching of these these fiery disciples, these are the men who have turned the world upside down. How would you like to have that as a testimony that comes out of Influence Church? They turned the world upside down. Do you realize how possible that is? Do you realize what happens when you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God and that Spirit of God is released through you in the world? That it's possible to begin to turn the world upside down? That the reputation begins to spread and begins to spread around and people are saved and people are transformed? Well, then write down Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. It said this, all of Asia 
heard the word of God. And we assume that that's Asia Minor. So not Asia as we think of China, but Asia Minor. All of Asia heard the word of God. Now, does that mean every last person? No, what it meant was there was the message going out so powerfully across the land there that all of a sudden, is there any place we haven't been or is there any place where they haven't heard this message? Why was it so effective in just a short amount of time? It was because discipleship was working overtime in the life of these disciples. You got 12 guys, one flunked the course, right? Judas flunked the course. So you got 11 guys, and what are they doing? They're going out, and they're telling the story. They're telling the story. They're literally just everywhere they go, hey, have you heard about Jesus and the resurrection? Have you heard this? Have you heard that? And a lot of people are hesitant because they say, I don't know if I know enough to do that. I love the story. I, I told it in church one day, and, and I, I just keep loving to go back over this, about this young guy who was father was a witch doctor in, in, uh, down in um, um, Mozambique. And, and he, he was, uh, one night he was laying there and he heard a voice. And he says, get out of your, get out of your hut or you're going to die. Remember this story? Get out of your hut or you're going to die. And he's thinking, you know, it's just a bad dream. All of a sudden, he hears it again. Third time, he says, I'm getting out of my hut. So he leaves. He goes over and gets his buddy, persuades him to leave, and they leave. And later, he finds out, months later, he finds out that that very night, a warring tribe came in and killed everybody, his mom, his dad. There was zero population left. He happens to run into a guy who's a Christian who looks at the two boys and said, I've been waiting for you. What took you so long? He tells him about Jesus. He gets saved. He tells him whatever he knows. These guys get so fired up about God, you know what they start doing? They start going all around southern Africa there in Mozambique, and they're preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. It's just amazing what's going on. Then he gets a Bible. And he finds out a bunch of the stories he'd been telling weren't even in the Bible. He just heard some stories, and he just told them about Jesus and what Jesus did. And he goes, wow, I found out that that's not even in the Bible. But he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He just didn't have the stories right. But guess what God did? God honored it because his heart was right, and he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And that's what Paul writes to in Philippians. He says, some preach the gospel for the wrong reason, but Christ is glorified, then I rejoice. You see, what happens is we can find a million reasons why we don't do something. That guy didn't even have the stories right, and God blessed him. You, you Don't wait until you get all the information. Just open your mouth and start preaching Jesus. I mean, that's what happened in Acts chapter 8. We looked at that last week under baptism, right? 826, I think it is. And it says, there it is. He said, you know, the, remember the Ethiopian? He was reading in the scroll of Isaiah, and he, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And it says, and, and uh, Philip opened uh, his mouth and preached unto him what? Just Jesus. The guys in the Old Testament reading the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 for us. He preached Jesus. And when we do that, there's power in that name, Right? There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of what? 
Jesus Christ, right? So what we want to do is just preach Jesus, and then as you do that, you can, we can see the world turned upside down. I mean, we can see Asia turned upside down. We can see our neighborhoods turned upside down. We can see people, what's going on over there? They've got the right name. They're influencing their world for Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, so discipleship. You got the, got the idea? It's pretty powerful. Amen? Okay. All right, let's go to uh, this lesson now on the Holy Spirit. And I want you to take your Bibles and open them. You're gonna, I'm going to give you some references. Some of these are in the study, but I want to I read them in sequence like this. I brought the old school Bible tonight. I have the King James Bible, the one that the Apostle Paul carried. All right, John chapter 14 and verse 15. I'll try to, try to update the language as we go so you can kind of stay up with me. But John chapter 14, verse 15 through 17. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write these references. You see where it says lesson three on page 19? I want you to write these three references I'm going to give you right up there so you can find them really quick. Because this is going to set some good uh, theology for you on the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in John chapter 14, Jesus is still alive. He's ministering, correct? So he has not risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit has not yet been poured out on the day of Pentecost. So we're going to learn something about the ministry of the Holy Spirit then and the Holy Spirit who will come later in power on Pentecost. So John chapter 14, let's look at verses uh, uh, 15 through 17. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you for a little while. What's it say? Forever. Now, it's really interesting. You see that word another? There's two different Greek words for the word another. One means another of a different kind. And the other means another of exactly the same kind. He uses that, sec- that latter use. In other words, the Holy Spirit is like me. He's really giving you a little glimpse into the Trinity here. The Holy Spirit and I are the same, not persons, but we are the same being. We're God. And it says, and he is going to be your comforter. He's going to come alongside of you and bring comfort to you. So that's one of the roles in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if I'm, if I'm taking notes here, I want to know what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what does he do and how does he act and how does that affect me? So what I find out here is that there's going to come one who's a comforter for me. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is what? To comfort. And it says he will abide with you. Okay, so he's going to be with me. And he's with me how long? Forever. Forever. That's a long time. Now, go with me and look a little further. Even the spirit of truth. So now he's called what? So how do I know truth? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will lead me into truth. He's the spirit of truth. If I'm reading the word of God and I'm filled with the spirit of God, I've got a pretty good shot at getting it right. Amen? That's what he's saying. 
Now, it doesn't mean you can't, you know, go off on some tangent and screw it all up. It's just saying he is the spirit of truth. If you're going to know truth, you're going to know it by the spirit of God. A lot of people, they'll buy every translation they can find of the Bible so that they can understand it. What's the problem with that? It's not about your mind. It's about your spirit. You don't need 20 translations of the Bible. You're not going to find the eureka moment where all of a sudden it all comes together because it is a divine book. It's living and active. Remember Hebrews 4.12? And sharper than any two-edged sword. So what it does, it slips itself in between your soul and your spirit with truth. Then it peels back and understands your heart. That's what the Spirit of God does. So it says here, he's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Why not? Because they don't want him. See the, see the idea here? The world doesn't receive him because they don't want the Spirit of God or they haven't heard of the Spirit of God. That's our job. Because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you. Now notice this. So where was the Holy Spirit before Pentecost? It says right here. What does it say? I just read it. Where was he with the disciples before Pentecost. What does it say? He is with you. But now notice, now it takes you into Pentecost, and he shall be where? In you. Where's the first record of the Holy Spirit in the Scripture? Anybody know? Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Remember that? Over the face of the waters? There's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't just show up at Pentecost for the first time. He was there, always was there, because he's God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons but one being. Fully God, each one of those members, okay? So here's what he's saying. Now, guys, you have experienced some of the awareness of the Holy Spirit. He's with you now. He's with you. But guess what? In this coming day, he's going to be in you. He's going to dwell inside of you. So when God made you, guess what? He made you a tripart being. Okay? Body, soul, and spirit. Okay? You know you got a body, right? You're sitting there. Okay? You got a body. You know what that is. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And your spirit, little s, let's use little s to describe that. Your spirit is your capacity to house the Holy Spirit. It's like the little tabernacle that God comes and fills up. That's what your spirit is. When he comes to live in you, you are now, you know, um, the Spirit is living in you, and now he can work his way through you. He can speak truth to you. He can guide you. He can comfort you. He works from the inside out. He's an interior decorator. Right? See, we get all, you know, religion is all about being an exterior decorator. Holy Spirit's all about an interior decorator. He works from the inside and works his way out. And the effect of the Spirit in you is going to have an effect outside of you. Amen? Okay. Let's go to uh, verse 25 of that same chapter. Now, you know, you're going to, second reference is, first one is John 14, 15 through 17. Next one is John 14, 25 and 26. 
Now, the reason I really like this little section of 14 through 16 is you can learn so much in three chapters. You can learn so much about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in three chapters. And generally, you have to, you don't find them you know, kind of packaged together like that for you. So it's kind of nice. And, and you say, oh, I need to study the Holy Spirit. We'll study 14, 15, 16. Okay? Those three chapters. Okay, now let's go to verses 25 uh, and 26 and see what it says here. Okay, these things I have spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. Now, by the way, you know one of the rules of Bible interpretation is that the Bible is the best commentary on itself. If you keep reading it, it will explain what it means. You just have to keep reading it. Well, what does that mean? Keep reading. Well, I kept reading. I said, keep reading. Well, I read the whole Bible through it. Well, then start over. Right? It will explain it. Notice what it says. Who's the comforter? It says, which is the Holy Ghost, which the Father will send in my name. Now, look what he says. He will teach you all things. So what's his, what part of his ministry? He's going to teach you. So you see, I can, I can speak to your mind, and my words can be empowered to your spirit by the Holy Spirit. But you see, I'm really not the teacher, right? It's the Holy Spirit who's teaching you. So that's why you can be sitting there, you can hear me say something, and the Spirit of God will say something in your spirit and go, you know, that's for you, or can you relate to that, or does that have application, or I want you to hear that. Or does that minister to you? And you're, you're going, oh, wow, that, I just saw something. I just felt something. It, you know, and it wasn't me. It was him through me because he's the teacher. And I'm just kind of like the waiter trying to deliver the food, right? But he's the chef. So it says, he shall teach you all things, and he will, shall bring to your remembrance all that I have spoken to you. Now, so... Um, Here's the cool thing about this is sometimes you're going to find yourself in a situation where you need a scripture and you don't have it. You kind of wish you would have memorized something. You kind of wish you would have listened better. You wish and wish and wish and you're sitting there, boy, I wish I had my Bible. I wish I had my concordance. I wish I had my computer. I wish I had somebody. And here's what it says. In those situations, what the Holy Spirit will do, he will bring to your memory what you need for that moment. So when you find yourself kind of hitting a wall and going, what do I do here? What you do is you just, in your heart, you just say, Holy Spirit, I don't know what to say. Right now, I am up against a wall. I, I don't have a, I, I apologize. I don't have a scripture for this one. I don't even know where to go with this. Would you give me the words? Would you speak through me? And see, that's part of his ministry. Because whether you've memorized Scripture or not, guess what? You've heard Scripture, and the Holy Spirit will take that from that little reservoir you have, and he'll start to take it, and he'll, he'll say, have you thought about this? And when in doubt, you know what you do? You just tell him about your salvation. Hey, I don't know the answer to that one, but let me tell you what happened to me. You know what? There is so much power in the testimony that you have of conversion of your experience with God, of a miracle, of, of seeing an answered prayer, whatever, you would be surprised. You start telling that, and guess what? Hey, Spirit of Prophecy is testimony of Jesus. All of a sudden, you start giving your testimony. Guess what? Jesus is coming through going, and he's, you may not even feel it. You may not even sense it, and that guy's getting slammed. 
with the Spirit of God. I've watched it before. I mean, I've watched it where, you know, I thought, how do I answer this guy? And, you know, I could give him the, the typical kind of answers, and I'll just say, well, let me, let me just ask you this. And you just watch them, and they're just, there's something happening there. There's a ministry going on there that you're not even touching. The Spirit of God is touching. He's ministering there. He's transforming a mind or a heart apart from you and your skill. This is not about you. It's what we tried to, you know, when we talked about people being healed. It's not about you. If you think it's about you, you're in the wrong, you're on the wrong train. It's about him. It's about Jesus. It's all about lifting up Jesus. Amen? You know, it's not, we never want to be man-centered. We never want to take the credit. We don't want to be, it's influence. No, God uses influence. It's not me. It's not you. It's God working through us. And the more we walk humbly before God, the more the Spirit of God can work through us. The more, the, the, the more credit we try to take, the less he wants to jump in. You want to do it? God, give it to you. You want to take control? Go ahead. I remember one time I was a kid, I was trying to work this saw, and I was messing things up bad. And my, my dad, he tried to tell me, he said, Dad, I know what I'm doing. He said, okay, go ahead. I chewed up. I mean, I butchered that board. I had to go get another one. I think that's what the Heavenly Father does sometimes. He said, if you really think you got it, I'm going to let you have it, and then I'll be there when you get ready to do it over. They just releasing, releasing, letting God do it. Okay, let me take you to uh, one more scripture in John. Let's go to John chapter 16, and let's go to uh, verse 13. It says, when he, now remember, never refer to the Holy Spirit as it. He's not an it. He's a person. Would you call? Would you say this, um, John? Would, or Crystal? Would you say to John one day, you know, hey, it, come over here. He's a good it. Well, the it's home. Stupid, isn't it? But see, sometimes we refer to the Holy Spirit. He is a person, and guess what? He's the most sensitive one in the Trinity. He comes like a dove. And he can easily be hurt. He's grieved, the Scripture says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit in whom you were sealed under the day of redemption. You can quench the Holy Spirit, Paul writes in Thessalonians. You can, you can put out the fire of the Holy Spirit in your life. So it says here, when he, when, he, when he has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now watch this. This is really neat. For he will not speak of himself. Holy Spirit doesn't lift himself up. Isn't this neat? This is the unity that's found within the Godhead. Perfect unity functioning within the Godhead here. It says that what he will do, he will, um, he will not speak of himself, but, but whoever he shall hear, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak, and he will show you things to come. Verse 14, he shall glorify me. Who? Who's, he, who's Jesus? Jesus, right? What's the Holy Spirit going to do? Lift up Jesus. Lift up Jesus. Why is, he, why is the Holy Spirit lift up Jesus? Is he more important? No. His role is different. Why does he lift up Jesus? Shout it out if you think you know. Salvation comes through Jesus, right? Right? 
So you see, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to, it, it tells us in another place here in John, he comes and he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and coming judgment. See, that's, part of, that's the ministry to the world. When he comes, he's going to say, he's going to come and people are going to go, you know, I, I don't, don't know if I want to hear this. Well, that's conviction of sin, of conviction of sin, judgment, coming judgment, right? And righteousness, the need to live your life differently, to be righteous before God. That's his ministry. He's going to lift up Jesus. And so even if you see it there, you know, in John's gospel earlier, he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Lift up Jesus constantly. Okay? All right, let's go to uh, page 19. Who is the Holy Spirit? We've already touched on this a bit. But who is he? He is God. He is third member of the Trinity. The word Trinity does not appear in Scripture. It's a theological term to describe what you read in Scripture. Turning your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Write this down. You see where it says the the end of that uh, paragraph that begins, the Holy Spirit is God? And then it says the Bible teaches each about the three persons of of the Godhead. You see right there? Right next to that, write Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, because you're going to want a reference for the Godhead, and I'm going to give you one, okay? And we're going to show you some other ways that you can look at the Trinity, because even though this isn't a class on the Trinity, you want to know who the Holy Spirit is, right? So Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, here's what it says. For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So let's just pause for a moment. You can understand the invisible things of God by the things that are made. You know what that is? That's phase one. It's phase one. God shows you things in the visible world that point you to the invisible world. So it says here, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power, Okay, so in other words, you look at the at the world and you go, you know, you really somebody really has to tell you that there's not a God. If you're a child and you're growing up, you just kind of go, there's somebody in charge of this deal. Somebody made this right. There's just a natural tendency to do that. And it says and but whether you know what God that is or not, you go, you know, whoever he was, he's more powerful than me because I can't do this. That's what it says here. So you can see his eternal power and Godhead. Do you mean to tell me that I can look into the world if I've never read the Bible and I can understand the Trinity of God? That's what he says. That's what he says. I believe him. I just believe it. I believe that, you know, the longer we become urbanized, the, the, more, the less we understand our world, right? But just think about this. The, the Godhead is three. Think about how God uses the number three to point out things in our life. Even primitive man understands this principle, past, present, and future. All time is measured in threes. When God revealed himself there in, Romans, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, he said there's going to be, he made the sun and the moon and the stars also, and these are for signs and for seasons. In other words, I can look there and go, something's going on. I can take, I can take three primary colors, I can make every color. When God created me, he created me body, soul, and spirit. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but there's things that always point us to that. So there's a reference to the Godhead. Now I'm going to take you 
to the clearest scripture uh, dealing with the Trinity in the Bible that's not in most of your Bibles because it was removed. And I'll show you what I mean. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. I, by the way, I don't make any commission on Bibles, so I'm not trying to sell you a Bible tonight, okay? But I'm going to show you why this is the case. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. Um, I, I'm going to read verse 7. I'm not going to read verse 8. So are you all with me? Everybody got your Bible open and your preferred translation of your Bible. Got it? Okay, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. I'm going to read it. You just follow along. Do not read verse 8. Now you're all reading verse 8 right now, aren't you? Sinners, right? Okay, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Anybody discover something? Did you discover something in your translation, anybody? Was it something missing, like most of it? Yeah. Who's, what, what are you reading from there, John? What version, translation do you know? Attaboy. NIV. Oh, good. Joanne. Joanne. Okay, Joanne. I want you just to read verse 7, not verse 8. For there are three that testify. For there are three that testify. Does that sound different? Now, John, you read yours. Verse 7. Verse 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Does that sound different to you? Does it sound a little different? Okay. And you say, well, wait a minute. That is undoubtedly one of the greatest verses in the Word of God on the Trinity. It's not the only one. It's just one of the great ones. Okay, now, some of you are going to go buy a new Bible now. Um, the first, the first attack um, in the Word of God was, was where? Was on whom? On the Word of God. We're going to look at this in the next section, right? But, but you see, here's the thing. Who put the Bible together? Give you a hint. Two words. First one starts with H. Second one starts with S. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, if we believe that the Word of God is inspired, and that's a Greek word that means God breathed, if we believe it's God breathed, then don't we believe that God has had something to do with this? It was the Spirit of God, and, you know, we'll have a class later on that will talk about inspiration and, 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 and how we got the Word of God. That's not our purpose here. But I want you to understand something about the Spirit of God. This is the Trinity. Okay. Now, let's keep moving. I know you've got a million questions now, and, and you're, you're – Rethinking your Bibles. Uh, if you have an NIV, I, you can read it quicker than the other version because there's 161 verses missing from it. Okay? But we won't focus on that right now. Okay. Now let's go to page 19. Where is the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit comes, he comes to indwell you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, it says, What? Do you not know that your body is what? The temple. Hey, remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament? That was a type and a picture. What was it made out of? It was like a tent. What was it made out of? Animal skins. It was made out of flesh. It was made out of flesh. 
And what did the what did the Holy Spirit do? What did the Spirit of God do? It says that it was called the Shekinah glory would fall on that and would indwell that inner sanctum, that holy of holies. The Spirit of God would live in flesh. That was a type and a picture of Jesus Christ who would come. And that's why it says in John, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and tr- full of truth. It says, and he dwelt among us. Do you know what that word is? It's literally the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory when we saw him. That's the glory of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. See the type? And guess what he does? You see, that was God in the tabernacle, God in man, in in Christ Jesus. But what does the Holy Spirit do? He incarnates you. The Spirit comes to live in you. And that's that's the time we live in now, okay? Um, Let's see if I've got anything else I want to do. Go to page 20, page 20, um, kind of toward the bottom there where it says the Holy Spirit seals us. Okay, what happens when I give my life to Christ? God puts his seal on me. And that seal cannot be broken. That's why it says when he comes, he's going to be with you for how long? Okay, some people think, well, he's only with me until I sin. Well, he's, he can't change addresses that often. Did y'all catch that? Your sin is under the blood of Christ. You're once and for all cleansed from all sin. The only issue we have is how do we deal with sins in our life? That's why Romans uh, 6 is so important. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And that's the sinful nature, not individual sins. Okay, so the, ten, the so you're sealed with the, the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. Now, look what it says here. If you go down there, it says um, the sealing is for identification. It marks who we are, who we belong to. The sealing is for protection, for protection, and it is for earnest or a down payment. You know what God does? He says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. That's my pledge to you. That's my guarantee to you that you are my child for eternity. If you don't embrace that truth, you will always live in fear. Now, God left me. You know, I, I messed up this time. Well, you were a mess before he found you, and he loved you. Amen? Okay, um, Let's see here. What else I want to hit? Um, go down to the, um, we've already hit the, the, the conviction there, page 21, top of it. Let's go down to the bottom. You see where it, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23? Okay, I want to give you a really, really important theological information here. They are not the fruits, plural, of the Holy Spirit. So some people will say, you know, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, well, I have a little love, a little joy, not much peace, no patience. When you have the Holy Spirit, you have all nine of those qualities because it's his quality in you. So it's not fruits. It's not a list he's making. He's saying this is what the Holy Spirit, who he is. This is what he's like. He is all of these things. When I am filled with the Holy Spirit, guess what? I have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control all simultaneously in my life. When I am not filled with the Holy Spirit, I don't have those functioning in me. And you say, well, but how come I, I, I you know, I, I, 
I have patience, but I don't have some of those other things because you're functioning in the natural characteristic of strength that you have. Some people here are more patient than other people. Some people are kinder than other people. Some people are gentler than other people. And sometimes those can masquerade as the work of the Holy Spirit when, in fact, it's just your natural quality and tendency. We're either filled with the Spirit, that is, and the word fill doesn't mean like as much as you can get in there. It means under the influence. When you get under the influence of the Holy Spirit, this is what, how he manifests himself in your life. Pretty cool, huh? Okay. Um, by the way, did I tell you if you find typos in here, and I've already found a bunch, yeah, would you, would you just write them to me? I purposely didn't, didn't put this on Amazon or, or sell it outside that because I knew it needed some, some work. And I figured you were great uh, editors. So whenever, you, so whenever you find them, just give them to me. Don't go, oh, poor thing. He missed that one. Okay? Huh? Oh, yeah, the next class. The next class will get a good one, good copy. Okay, um, so anyway, um, yeah, top of page 23, allow the Holy Spirit to have his way in your life. That's the filling of the Spirit. Um, and he's taking more control of you. And, you know, some people just get buzzed with the Holy Spirit. Have you seen the signs on the highway? Buzz driving is drunk driving. Have you seen that one? Okay. Some people just get buzzed. They just get enough of the Holy Spirit to know he's there, but not under, under the control. So what we want to say is, you know, you know, getting a buzz for the Holy Spirit is pretty cool, but why not get filled? Walk in the fullness. Walk in the filling of the Spirit of God. You say, well, how do I do that? You ask him. Pretty simple. You yield yourself to the Spirit, and you say, Spirit of God, would you take control of my life? Would you fill me, Spirit of God? Would you speak to me? Would you work through me and in me? And would you help me to understand Scripture when I read it? Would you do that, Holy Spirit? That's yielding to the Spirit, allowing the Spirit of God to begin the filling process. You know, and if we were in a more advanced class on the Holy Spirit, we'd talk about other dimensions, but we're just trying to get all the nuts and bolts down here because that's what you're teaching a person who you're discipling. This course, if you disciple someone, is not for you to go off on your theological tangents and show everybody how much you know. I remember the first time I discipled somebody with this, um, I looked over the guy and said, what do you think? And he goes, I don't have a clue what you just said. Not good commentary. I go, I'm sorry. I was just showing off. I really was. I was just showing off what I knew. I figured he knew what I knew. He didn't know anything. Didn't know anything. Assume that whoever you disciple knows nothing, and then if they need more, they'll tell you. They'll tell you more, okay? Hey, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and hit the Word of God, all right? And if you want to take a look at my imitation of Christ, you can come by, but you can't be flipping pages and throwing it across the room, okay? Okay. 